Welcome to Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. A podcast? It should have been a series! It's, it's a pub lunch with somebody who has had many uh, illustrious uh, connections with Doctor Who. So I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. My name is Stephen Thorne, and I've been in several Doctor Who stories playing various monsters and villainous persons. And um, Toby has asked me to join him for this lovely lunch. And here we are in the garden in the sunshine. Well, we're going to talk about so much more than Doctor Who, but we should start with it, which is uh, why we, we'd nominally convene. Because being being so tall, I mean, you, you, I, I quite often see the same people at auditions, but I think if you're a particular... Like, where, you, there must have been certain actors that, that three or four of you would go, oh, I'm up against you again. I mean, did that quite often happen at yes, auditions? Yes, that quite often happens. It does. And especially... If you go for a commercial interview and they're looking for a businessman, a tall businessman, and you go and you open the door into the, the waiting room for your scene, and the room is full of people who look exactly like you, with glasses, grey hair, pinstripe suits, all sitting there, and you think, hello, here we all are again, going through this extraordinary process, whereas someone you have to go through and be interviewed and read the script and all that. You just need someone to put their head round the door, have a look and say, you. Yes. <laughs> Not quite the same when you're playing a cloven-footed devil no, creature. No, though. no, no. So no. Um, that was directed by Christopher Barry. It you was. remember of Christopher. He was... I remember him being kind and helpful. Is all really I can say about that. He was a nice, kind man. I don't think he, he's no longer with us. Is no, no, sadly, sadly not. Yes, I haven't seen a lot of him since then. But he was—he was fine. He was a very good director, and he was—he taught me a lot about playing monsters, not to overdo it, and not to do too little either. But but no, he was—he was helpful. It's a fine line, isn't it? And you were covered in. Yes. I mean. Do you tell? Do you say to people, "I'm going to be in Doctor Who next week," and then they go, "Which didn't recognise you?" Because yes, I mean, as Azal, you've got right. oh, a fantastic makeup job. Actually, they did on it you was, for that, and it was extremely uncomfortable. I had long, talony nails, a chest wig, a back wig, hooves, which were like sort of stiletto heels, and a wig and false teeth which was specially made by a gentleman in the bowels of Wimpole Street somewhere, expert dental... Um, what's the word for them? Dental, dental engineer, whatever it is. And when we'd finished, I said to the wardrobe, because they belonged to wardrobe, really, can I keep the teeth? And they said, oh, no. I said, well, why not? They won't fit anybody else. They've been tailor-made for me, and I rather wanted them to frighten my children with and you know... <laughs> Where it's Halloween, but they disappeared somewhere into the bowels of the television centre wardrobe, as was in those days, never to be seen again, which is rather sad. Because of the unique way the BBC yes. is funded. The talons, of course, meant that it was extremely difficult to do certain things. I couldn't go uh, during 
the recordings when there were breaks. I couldn't go up to the canteen or anything because the clip-clop up with the high heels was quite difficult. And also these huge talony nails made it very difficult to have eaten anything. So a very kind man called David Garfield, David Thomas he became, the writer, bought me copious cups of coffee. I drank copious cups of coffee while they were having their break. And of course, copious cups of coffee lead to the inevitable visit to the gents. I arrived at the gents, walked up to the urinal, looked down at these furry trousers I was wearing and these long talons and thought, well, I'm either going to perform some sort of act of surgery here <laughs> or commit some dreadful indiscretion. I had to go back to wardrobe asked them to take off these nails. They said, what do you want to take your nails off for? I said, I want to go and have a pee. Please hurry up. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be quite the same if you were matted. No, uh, no. <laughs> so, I mean, you were then must have obviously been on the books and had impressed them, because the next time they needed a tall uh, baddie with a booming voice, and I think it's a cracking part, and it's uh, uh, an iconic story, Omega in The Three Doctors. Oh yes, that was wonderful. That, I think that's probably my favourite, because it's the best part, actually, that I, of the Doctor Who parts I played. And there again, I was completely unrecognisable behind a mask. It's very interesting acting behind a mask, because the mask does an awful lot of the work for you. So the danger is that you forget you've got a mask on and you have to frighten people and have a huge and dreadful voice, which then goes over the top and becomes quite too much, really. So you have to find the happy medium that fits this particular mask. And that's quite difficult. And I, I, I think I possibly found it. But... Well, I've if seen I you do this in interviews before where you've sort of berated yourself and said, oh, I felt there was a... And I, th I, think, uh, I think because Omega... I think Omega's a brilliant creation and, and brilliantly played because, as we discover, he's being held together by the force of his will. And I think there's that marvellous scene where they take his mask off and he's not there. And what yeah. an extraordinary idea that is. And I think there's a lot of pathos that you inject into him there. I think yeah. it really works. So. Well, thank you. Good. He's been brought back by Big Finish, of course. Yeah. Resurrected. Yeah. MB to whoever's doing the television. <laughs> <laughs> well, stranger things have happened. Yes, you never know you're lucky in a big city. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that must be extraordinary that, you know, you, yes, you were doing Doctor Who in the 70s and the, the idea that you would play a part for a couple of weeks on telly and that many, many years later... Oh, I know, that's quite extraordinary. I'm the, dear Nick Courtney, who became a good friend of mine, once said to me, as we were sitting signing things at a Doctor Who convention, he said, you know, if I'd known that this would become such a cult, he said, I'd have done it better. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I said, Nick, it would be impossible to improve on that performance, which, of course, it would have been. What a lovely, kind, good, sweet man he was. Well, and I thought you'd, I was at his memorial service and I thought you did a beautiful reading for him. So had you, met, had you met him on Doctor Who or had you met him elsewhere? No, I first met him on Doctor Who, but we then met again on the radio. We did a lot of radio together and subsequently other Doctor Whos and he became a dear friend. Yes, he, was a, 
it was a sort of family Doctor Who that you sort of, after you've done a couple of them, you sort of fell into this family and, and felt a part of the team, maybe, it's a better word. No, family was good, because you met the same people. And, no, it was, it, it was a good experience to be in that rep, so to speak. Well, but families have very interesting dynamics, and um, it's sort of quite well documented that uh, your two doctors in the three doctors, John Pertwee and Patrick Troughton, had very different approaches to acting. Indeed, so how was it? Was did. sort of standing between the sparring two. It was great. It was very funny, actually. It was very interesting. Pertwee, a lovely man, fabulous raconteur, wonderful jokes and tales he would tell, experiences. But on the set, he was a bit of a control freak, and he had to be in charge, and he had to know exactly where the camera was and where he was. And in playing Omega, I would suddenly feel his hands on my shoulders, pushing me to the left or right. I'd say, what are you doing, John? He said, I'm terribly sorry. He said, I can't see the camera. I said, I can't even see you, so I don't know (laughs) where I'm supposed to be. And then, of course, somebody in the gallery would say, why have you moved him? He's... You know, he's on his marks and leave him there. So I had to be put back. And the mercurial Pat Trout would say, Oh, John, he said, leave him alone. It's not us they want to see, it's the monster. <laughs> but that went down well. <laughs> yes. And there was a slight sort of tension between them, let us say. But great. I mean, in, in, it was great fun and, and all good humoured. Well, and um, good humour is something that always seems to be associated with Lenny Main, who was the director oh, of yes, that. Oh, yes, yes. He was another mercurial character. He used to be a dancer. Yeah. And, uh, yes, he was a lovely man and, and had lots of tales. He was rather disappointed that in the set that uh, Omega had. He thought it should have been much more splendid. But there restrictions of BBC finance I suppose were responsible for that but I remember him being rather upset when he first saw it that it wasn't grander he said we deserve something better than this I, I <laughs> However, think he it had looks alright, it doesn't matter anyway it would have distracted from me <laughs> <laughs> that's very true Is and I, the funny thing was I worked with him again in playing Eldrad in the, in the Hand, Hand of Fear, Fear yeah. and I played the male half of um, Judith Paris, Judith Paris. Yeah. and unfortunately we never met beforehand and I never met her in a scene obviously because we weren't in, in the same bits of the story but I always think it was rather a shame we didn't meet beforehand and say so we could have worked out some either vocal tick or, or physical tick we could have used to connect us together to show that we were part of the same entity and I'm, that's all rather sad. I only met her on the last day of shooting when Lenny Main took us both out to dinner that night, when we had a very boozy dinner. Seems a very because we we talk we talk now about you know the advantages of those ways of making television were that you rehearsed and surely that's entirely yeah. what that sort of rehearsal period was would have been useful yes, for. It would have been yes, but I suppose there again it comes down to money. You would have yeah. had to sort of paid one of us to be there when we needn't have been there. And it's a nice costume, big costume you have for that, and you can sort of see your oh, face that, as well. yes, that was extremely hot. And underneath it, I wore green Wellington boots, I remember. And when I took them off, 
at the end of the session. I would pour out of them sort of half a pint of sweat which had gathered in the bottom of the boots having trickled down because they were, the suit was sort of rubber, rubberized thing and you just sweated profusely in it. Anyway, I probably lost a lot of weight and did me good. And it was, uh, it was Elizabeth Sladen's last, uh, it was. last story, that? It was. That was sad, too, because I was in right at the beginning of, with Elizabeth Sladen because Barry Letts asked me to go and audition. And he rang me up one morning, and quite out of the blue, and said, what are you doing? Oh, somebody's having a jolly lunch. Uh, he rang me up one morning out of the blue and said, what are you doing today? And I said, nothing. And he said, I'm going to send a car for you to come to Television Centre. And I said, what for? And he said, I'll tell you when you get here. And I thought, oh, gosh, it's another lovely part in Doctor Who. Anyway, the car came and I went and it transpired that it was to read a scene with Liz Sladen, who was being auditioned for, the, for that part, as some dreadful creature, monster, villain who was going to terrify her. And uh, we did that, and she got the part. And so I feel sort of quite pleased to have been responsible to helping her in that direction. Indeed, a great service, because she was fantastic. She was, she was lovely. Well, talking first and last, we've, um, we've leapt from the one that you, you actually talk about the least, because um, uh, you're not on the DVD for it, um, and I suppose because it, it's, a, it's a, a part of a slightly different calibre, shall we say, is when you come into Frontier in Space, having played the lead villain in The Three Doctors, you're suddenly a first Ogron in Frontier in Space. So is it just a case of, if I'm not working and a part comes along, I do it? Indeed, yes. If nothing else is in the book, do it has been my my rule, usually. And usually two things come along at once, and you always choose the wrong one. No, if there's nothing else, do it. And anyway, as I say, one was by then part of the, the the team, so to speak, and so no, that was fine, I didn't mind at all. Well, unfortunately for Michael Kilgariff there were three Ogrons, so you were two of them, yes, you didn't have to tread on each we other's toes. And there were lots of non-speaking Ogrons, it was quite difficult because we were all dressed alike and with the same masks, and you never knew who you were talking to, so you had to be very careful <laughs> in case you spoke to the wrong person. Like, it reminds me of going to Niagara Falls with my wife. And in those caves where you go in and look over and you wear um, Macintoshes and Sou'Westers to keep the spray off you. I walked to some complete stranger and put my arm round her and said something endearing to her to discover <laughs> it's not, not my wife at all, but an elderly lady with blue-rinsed hair. However, that's another story. Might have made her day, yes. you never know. <laughs> Um, but that, famously, the ending of that story, which turned out to be Roger Delgado's last contribution to the show, was sort of cut about because the monster was deemed unsatisfactory. And uh, so do, do you remember it being in any sort of difficulties? And what are your memories of Roger as well? Oh, Roger was lovely. He was a good, kind, lovely man. I remember him taking... The, there was a producer's run at the end of... Um, Yes, it was in The Demons. We had a producer's run of The Demons. And people used to say, the producer's run is when you give your performance, you know, because the producers will be watching, and on that they will base whether they ask you back again for another one. Anyway, which is a load of rubbish. I mean, it was just another run-through so that the technicians could see what they had to cope with. And before it, 
remember seeing dog, uh, Roger take two little flasks out of his briefcase. And I thought, what is he going to do? Is one brandy and the other ginger ale or something? And he opened one, poured a libation into the cap, knocked it back, put it back. I thought, what's the other one? He opened the other one, shook it into his hand, and it was cologne that she patted his face with. And I thought, that's, that's <laughs> the actor getting ready to impress us all. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lovely but story. But he was a sweet man, charming. I mean, you know, those are the people you should get to play dreadful villains because they do it better than anybody else. Bubbly, nice people. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, well, talking of... Um, nice people though and this will help us to move on from Doctor Who um, is that you must have impressed at the producers run because you worked with Barry Letts again you worked with him David Copperfield and um, so what, do, what do you remember of Barry? Barry was a lovely man he was an, an autodidact for those who don't know what that means which I didn't until a short time ago it means somebody who's self-taught he, he was a fount of knowledge on all sorts of subjects and a great teacher, and he would never let an opportunity go by without telling somebody greater knowledge about a particular subject which he happened to have and he thought they ought to know. So it was a great sort of teaching experience, especially for young actors who he would explain matters of, of text and literature and, oh, anything that came up he would know about it and if he, there was something interesting to say about it he would say it but he was a, a kind man and a, a good man and a good director and writer he wrote a lot of good stuff he wrote novels and plays and no he was he was quite a power in the creative world Barry and and so where did it all begin for you, Stephen? What was your background and was it always going to take you into the theatre and into acting? Possibly. I was the son of a Church of England rector in a small parish in Lancashire. Lots of actors, it seems to me, have come from that particular area. Laurence Olivier hit a mention one. <laughs> Brian Pringle, John Hurt... Um, I don't know, there's an affinity of the church and the theatre, I think, possibly because the church was the theatre in the early days, of course. It's the only bit of colour and excitement people had in their lives. And priests and certain parsons still do, became our sort of actors monkey in a way, perform in the pulpit. Um, yes, I was adopted, funnily enough, and uh, I was born in London, and I was... Um, picked out by my parents in, a, in a, a ward full of abandoned children at the age of about three months I think I was three or four months and whisked off back to Lancashire where I had a, a lovely childhood happy upbringing and, and lovely parents so I have nothing to complain about but um, I suppose that I used to clamber into the pulpit at my father's church and pretend to preach and things as a child and I did toy with the idea of, of going into the church. But then school and after-school national service, which we did then, sort of put a stop to that, because I did my national service in the Navy. And uh, we used to do a lot of plays. I was on the, in an aircraft carrier, HMS Ocean, 
going around the Mediterranean, and we would do plays uh, using the aircraft lift as a stage. And uh, I remember a Chief Petty Officer, Baird, his name was, said to me, you ought to do this for a living, you know, you're quite good at it. And I said, are you sure? And he said, I, of course I'm sure. So I then thought, yes, perhaps I, will, I should. And after National Service, I did. I came out and disappointed my parents, I think, by not going to university, which I was supposed to do, and going to drama school instead. And that's how I started. But not just any drama school. You went to RADA? I did. I was lucky enough to go to RADA, yes. It's changed a lot since then. I don't know I should get in now. (laughs) (laughs) The bar has been set extremely high. I mean, in those days, you only had to do a couple of pieces for them. Now you have to do all, go through all sorts of hoops of improvisations and movement classes and voice and goodness knows what before you're considered. Anyway, I, I enjoyed it. It was it was good. And did did any did any of your contemporaries uh, go on to uh, continue in the profession for any serious length of time? A lot of my contemporaries at RADA did, yes. Um, Ted D'Souza, Christopher Benjamin, we were contemporaries. I shared a a cellar, it was, not a flat, one room in a cellar in the Vale of Health in Hampstead with Christopher Benjamin, for which we paid the princess on the 27 and 6 a week. Marvellous! It's like a it's like a mini pre Doctor Who convention. You're because Christopher Benjamin, Edward D'Souza have both hold uh, places in Doctor Who history. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, so th- your RSC roll call is very impressive. I don't know. I must have felt that this was this was what it was all about. Um, Charles Lawton, Michael Redgrave, Laurence Olivier's Coriolanus. I mean, t- t- what was it like as a young actor to be in the presence of those great actors? It was very humbling, I suppose. You thought, good heavens, I'm, a, I'm in the wrong business. I shall never be as good as that. No, it was wonderful. I mean, it was such an opportunity to be able to watch at close quarters people like that working and, and preparing a part and, and playing it. It was such an education. And I don't care what anybody says, it was worth it. People say, oh, well, what could you learn? You only had a few lines and stood about waving banners and being extras, so to speak. That's not the case at all. You learn an awful lot of what not to do as well as what to do. And it was a great privilege to be there. I was there for three years, luckily enough, and started. I got married when I was at Stratford, started a family there, made some very good friends. Ted D'Souza was there when I in his first season, which was also mine. So, uh, we just recently left RADA. <coughs> uh, Julian Glover, best man at my wedding, a great friend now, was there. And, um, no, it was, it was a, a privilege to be there, especially for that second season, which was, dare I say it, in 1959, which was the 100th season. So we had all the stars there, Lawton, Olivier, Paul Robeson, in the fellow, um, Dame Edith Evans, for heaven's sake, directors like Tyron Guthrie, who was, a, who was a, a, a mammoth star of the directorial age. 
theatre named after him in Canada. And he, oh, a wonderful director. And all those people, Tony Richardson um, was there as director. Olivier's Coriolanus, directed by Peter Hall. Um, again, by, I'm sure, directed Lear. Charles Lawton. Didn't Lawton struggle as Lear, though? Was, was, was... He did, he did. He struggled vocally. He and Ian Holm, he took Ian Holm out to, I think they're called the Rollwright Stones, um, prehistoric stone circle, where they, he would go, he, Lawton, and shout and to get his voice right and then we would shout the storm scene lines there. Olivier apparently had told him the year before when they'd met in Hollywood and he'd said if you're going to do Lear at Stratford you'd better start now by shouting and using your voice much great, to a greater extent than you do at the moment because believe me it's, it's a very hard work to do that. And I don't think he did that hard work. I mean, in the storm, after the storm scene, in the, the latter scene, he was heartbreaking. But it was too late then because he'd lost the momentum that you should have built up to earn that in the earlier scenes. It was just a matter of physical strength, really. So he had the pathos of Lear, so but not the... He had the pathos at the end, the, but not big, the power yeah. at the beginning. And... Uh, one night there was a wonderful... He dried on his, on the, in the first scene and he was sitting on a large wooden throne up three or four steps to get to it. And he dried and the prompt came and he said no. So an actor called Donald Eccles, who was understudying him, was on the stage at the time as a, an attendant and so was I and several other people as so I was holding a banner of some sort. And Donald Eccles struggled up the stairs because he was uh, uh, dressed as, and, and performing as an old gentleman, staggered up the stairs and gave him the line, at which Lawton again said no. So Donald sort of shrugged his shoulders, came back down the stairs, went back, by which point another prompt came from the prompt corner. And Lawton said, no, go back to the top of the page. And he'd obviously remembered the line sort of photographically from the pages in the script. So they gave him the line at the top of the page. He said, thank you, and carried on. Now, it took about as long as I've taken to tell you that. And when Simon Callow, who I worked with in David Copperfield, much later on, was writing his biography of Lawton, it was about that time. And he was talking about it and said, have any of you worked with Lawton? And I said, well, I was in his Lear at Stratford. Ah, I said, have you got any stories? And I said, no, except the one about the famous dry. And he said, oh, yes, I've been told that before, he said, by Peter Hall and Peter Jeffrey, who was there, by Ian Holm, who was on stage at the time, and various people. He said, but go on, tell me your version of it. So I told him the version I've just told you. And Simon Callow said, well, he said, that is not the version that I've heard from Peter Hall, which is not the version I heard from Peter Jeffrey or Ian Holm. They're all different, he said. <laughs> so how much, he said, truth can you base on these memories of history? I mean, what about Wellington and what he said at Waterloo? Who can believe that? After you were there a few years ago, 
five or six other people were at the same time and you all remember a different version. That's which is rather fascinating and then makes you wonder, really. It does. Yes. So... Yes. So for the past two years, I've been I've just been harvesting unreliable testimony <laughs> from all sorts because yes, because everyone's perspective is different. Yes, of course, quite. of course. Yes. What, what what about Olivier then? Oh, he was wonderful. He was wonderful. That's he had a trick of well, I don't know whether it was a trick, but he he knew everybody's name at the first rehearsal, and I'm told that he'd taken Paul Hardwick, an actor well-known actor in those days and sadly no longer with us out to dinner the night before with a company list and he'd been right through the list of the company and learnt everybody's name and who was who and who obtained with who and who was sleeping with who and all that and everything and the following morning I didn't know this but I'd gone in early for the read-through of, of uh, Coriolanus and I was standing by the notice board which was just inside the stage door at Stratford then and I was looking at the notice board to see what the understudy list was because that was the time when that went up and you learnt who you had to understudy and as I was standing there looking at the door opened the stage door and I heard this voice greeting the stage doorkeeper which was Olivier's and I thought who is there and I thought no don't turn around and stare so I stood looking at the board which was just outside the door into the rehearsal room and Olivier passed the time of day with the stage doorkeeper, and I heard his footsteps coming to go into the room. And as he passed me, looking at the book, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Good morning, Stephen. And I could have fallen through the floor. Good heavens, how on earth does he know my name? You know, the lowest of the low, really. He was quite, and he knew everybody's name. It's quite extraordinary. Well, that, that yes. puts you at ease as a young actor, of yes, course. Indeed. Well, it's yes. great company yes. leadership, isn't it? And then he'd hand round his signature cigarettes, his Olivier cigarettes. <laughs> Funny enough, the first thing I heard him say after the read-through, he went up to the stage management table where Peter Hall, the director, was sitting, and the first thing he said to Peter was, Now, about this death, because he had the most spectacular death scene in Coriolanus, and he obviously had very firm ideas about how it should be. And it was a spectacular death. He hurled himself from a sort of precipice hung, dangling, held by the feet by Ted D'Souza, Michael Graham Scott, David Buck, and one other, I think, who sort of anchored him at the top. But it was the most spectacular. Then he hang, hung like a piece of meat and was then stabbed by Orphidius for his death. You wouldn't want to drop him, though, would you? No. You wouldn't want to be the actor that you dropped Olivier. To be. <laughs> <laughs> so... You've had this sort of great start in the theatre. Was was television on your radar? Was it something that you aspired to do, or was it...? Uh... No, it was... I mean, the theatre was, was what I came into the business to do, and then I went... After Stratford, the Stratford Company came to the Old Witch in 1961, uh, with Peter Hall then in charge as artistic director, and it became the RSC. Uh, there didn't seem to me in the parts that I was offered for the following season anything really that was worth staying for that was any better than what I was doing at the time. So to, to better myself and get on and not get stuck in the, in the RSC for too long, 
I thought I'd, I'd better leave. But those three plays of the old, which were fascinating. There's another story about that. We um, did The Duchess of Malfi was one of the plays. And uh, Roy de Treece, a great friend of mine who was in all the three years that I was at Stratford and then stayed after me and, and perhaps I should have stayed because he, he got to play much better parts. However, he had one line in The Duchess of Malfi, which is in the mad scene. And Dame Peggy Ashcroft uh, had to say to him, having been incarcerated in this madhouse with all these weird people, she said, who are you? And Roy's reply was, one that wishes you long life. Now, about that time, Ein Coop were uh, promoting their beer, long life beer, and it was the first sort of canned beer that had actually appeared in any quantity in this country. And there was a great hoardings and fuss made about the, the launch of this. So I said to Roy, you ought to get in touch with Ein Coop and, and tell them you give them a plug every night when you say one that wishes you a long life. And he said, oh, I don't think I could do that. I said, you just have to write a letter to them and, and enclose a bit of the script and show them. I said, I'm sure you'd get free beer for life. He said, well, I don't have to do that. I said, well, if I write the letter, will you sign it? And he said, yes, all right. So I wrote this letter to Ryan Coop and we tore the page out of the script and underlined it and enclosed it and sent it off. Thought nothing of it for... Well, we just sort of forgot about it. But about three or four weeks later, we arrived one night at the... or I arrived at the, the stage door before Roy and opened the stage door, and it would only open sort of halfway. And I banged it and, and went in. The stage doorkeeper said, I believe this is something to do with you and Mr Dotrice, he said. I said, what? He said, that. And I looked behind the door, and there was a huge pile of crates of long-life cans of beer. And uh, I said, oh, good heavens, what's all that for? He said, well, it's sent to you, he said, and Mr. Dotrice. I said, oh, he said, what are you going to do with it? I said, well, what do you think we're going to do with it? <laughs> so <laughs> I carried it and got someone else to help me. We carried it up to the dressing room, and it fortified us for several weeks after that. I bet <laughs> you were popular, yeah, popular oh, yes. with the company. Yes. That's fantastic. Yes. It was a wonderful dressing room, that. Roy Dotrice, John Cater, The Devils. I was in the Devils, and uh, that was interesting. They we're still serving in those days teas, matinee teas at the Oldwich, as had it been a sort of French farce with French windows and things, but it wasn't inappropriate really to sell. Anyway, one point we had a large entrance from under the stage up some stairs, led by Max Adrian, the wonderful Max Adrian. And we got to the top of the stairs and the, he stopped and I was the next one behind him. I played the jailer in that. And wondered why he'd stopped. And he'd stopped because on the top step someone had left a tray of tea and cups and things and gone and sat back down in the front row. And he looked and he picked up this tray of tea and just threw it <laughs> against the, the nearest wall. And it fell with a huge clash and splintering of china and everything. And then went on, and I, I followed him up, and you could see the sort of trickling down the wall of, of tea down this flock wallpaper, and Max Adrian's shoulders heaving up and down as he walked on. <laughs> A wonderful moment. 
don't leave cups of tea in the way of actors. Certainly not. <laughs> oh, it reminds me, didn't, wasn't... Did you work with O'Toole as well? Yes, he was at Stratford. He was a wonderful Petruchio to Dame Peggy Ashcroft in The Shrew. And he played Thersites in um, Troilus. And, uh, yes, quite a power yeah. in the land was there too. Did, I mean, so he was destined for stardom. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. That was just before Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And he'd had his nose done. I hardly recognised him. I don't see there was anything wrong with his own nose, really. Well, no. However, it was a good nose, whatever it was like. <laughs> so when did... Had you started doing radio... Fairly early. No, I no, I hadn't. I then went from uh, Stratford to The Mermaid, the season of, with Bernard Miles, where Ted D'Souza again appeared in um, in the Andersonville trial. And um, what was the other? Not just pity she's a whore. Um, yes, just pity she's a whore. We did. And some of that, yes, that was an interesting time. Then I went to the Old Vic and to Bristol Old Vic for a bit. And it was while I was at the Bristol Old Vic that I met the wonderful radio director called R.D. Smith, who'd come to see a play. And I met him in the pub afterwards. I never met him before. And somebody had said, That's R.D. Smith, the, the radio producer. And I said, Oh, it would be interesting to meet him because I'd done an audition for the radio which they'd seemed to like and they'd said they'd keep it and be in touch when something came along. And nothing had happened and nothing had happened. So I met Reggie who, and talked to him and I said, as I'd done this audition, and I said, what I don't know is how you go about getting work on radio, having done the audition. And he said, oh, never mind. He said, leave it with me, I'll see what I can do. And a fortnight later, I was rung up and asked if I'd like to join the drama rep. So he'd been back to the BBC radio and said, I met this likely lad at Bristol and perhaps we ought to give him a, a go. And that's how I started and fell in love with it and did many, many, oh, over 2,000, I think. Never never looked back. Yes. Wonderful. So what is it about your voice? I mean, was the, was, is, it, is it innate? Did the church help? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's innate. I think it's just God-given accidental. But it, I used to have a Lancashire accent. Well, some people say you still have. And I remember at RADA, the famous Clifford Turner, at our first class, I sat between Ted D'Souza and Christopher Benjamin, I think. We all had to read a portion of Shakespeare so we could see what we sounded like. And it came to, and I read my bit, and there was a pause, and he said, Oh dear, what are we going to do with you? <laughs> and I could have fallen through the floor. And I went back to the cellar in Hampstead with Christopher, and I said, I'm going to go to the lavatory. I said, when I come out, I'm never going to speak like this again. And I did. I went to the lavatory, shut the door, <laughs> and thought, what on earth am I doing? And then came out and talked like that, rather, for about two weeks or so, until I got bored with it. And, and I'm left with what I sound like now. But, I mean, people with, with um, the right ear say to me, whereabouts in Lancashire do you come from? Really? Yes. And the answer is Hesketh Bank. <laughs> and, and are you, 
Is it? A, are you a good mimic, or is it about the versatility of modulation? Because you've done all, so much voice work. What I'm not really a terribly good mimic, no. But it's um, what I call it is is daring to do it. I mean, it is dare to do it. I mean, I do a lot of audio book recording, and there are all sorts of voices and things. And, Chinese Americans who've lived in Wales you'll suddenly find in a book or something and my advice to people if I was ever asked is just take a deep breath and dare to do it and advice I was given a long time ago which I pass on as well is that accents should be done in watercolours and not oils which is very good advice because people tend to do far too much if they, they think, oh, I can do this accent, so I'll do it. Uh, they will Lancashire accent like that. Um, nobody will know what I'm saying, and you become Uncle Mort like that, but there are people who don't know what you're talking about. And so that's no good if they don't know what you're talking about. So you have to modulate it to make it, you know, recognisable. People it. who are terribly good at Geordie accents uh, are very proud of it, quite rightly. But sometimes they go too far, and so people in Cornwall or whatever don't understand the word they're saying. So it's a very tricky business. It was stopping the accent becoming the character, isn't it? Yes, that's, the... that's right. That's... Yes. Well, I remember your, your tones bled out from the radio into my childhood because you were Treebeard in that epic oh, Lord was. of the Rings, um, which has a cast that goes... Ian Holm, Michael Horden, John Le Mesurier, Michael Graham Cox again, um, what David a memory Collins. You've got. I mean, it's it, it was an ex- an extraordinary production to do that on the radio. So, what was that like to be part that of? That was great fun. It was wonderful. That was another sort of family to belong to. Mothered by Jane Morgan, the wonderful Jane Morgan, who's done so many wonderful serials. And isn't it sad that nowadays the the radio has decided that people's attention span is no longer than sort of half an hour or a quarter of an hour or something. What's happened to Saturday Night Theatre? And You know, people used to love it, and hour-long plays. There are very few of them. Most things are quarter or three-quarters or half an hour, and it's very, very sad. When I joined the Rep in the 60s, mid-60s, I think it was, after Reggie Smith's good offices, there were 45 people on that rep. Now, I think there are six, and some of those are students straight out of drama school with a couple of elder statesmen to leaven the loaf. It's very sad. I love radio drama. Great stuff. Well, and you I... don't need any scenery. Oh, no. You say, you know, here we are on the moon, and there you are on the moon, because you've said so. Yeah. Are the genres that you prefer? I mean, you've done a lot of fantasy and, and, and science fiction. And I mean, uh, what really. are you they drawn to? Anything that has a good part in it. I mean, comedy is, is hard work, and I'm, I'm not a great comedian. Um, what I loved, really, I think possibly the favourite of my radio performances, well, just to be in it, was the Uncle Mort yes, series. Yes, of course. Peter Tinniswood's wonderful writing, which I I say anybody could have done because you just had to read it. It was it was wonderful. It leapt off the page, and it's very sad that he's no longer with us. Because he had several more episodes up his sleeve. He wanted to take Uncle Mort all over the place: America, China, anywhere. And it was and 
but it was that those were great fun and I really enjoyed those. And how had those come about? Well, it was just a character he invented. It. No, and, but for, uh, for, 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 the, for you, for your, for your. Oh, I was I did a was doing a, play, a radio play in Manchester, which he'd written, which didn't um, contain Uncle Mort. It was, a, but it was about a, a North Country family, and I was in it. Uh, when he'd uh, written Uncle Mort for radio, and Robin Bailey wasn't going to do it, he was casting about for somebody to do it, and he remembered my performance in this play, and he suggested me. And I was loath to do it because I said, Peter, I'm not a Yorkshireman, I'm a Lancashireman. He said, oh, it doesn't matter. So thank goodness it didn't matter. So he pretended he came from Yorkshire. <laughs> he was actually more Lancastrian than Yorkshire. But a wonderful part. And they were great fun to do those. Well, and you still, I mean, you, do you still, still audio books? I mean, there's intense concentration required from that. There is. There? It is the most draining thing I think I've ever done the, the, the concentration that is I said I was asked recently to be on a panel which discussed audiobooks which was organised by Equity and there were people from Audible and publishers and things on this panel and I was asked to be the token narrator and we were going to be asked um, the difference between audiobooks when we first started doing them and the modern ones now that you record from iPads and not from paper, or but we used to do them actually from the book. And but uh, and before when it came my turn to say something, I said first of all before I say anything, I should just like to say that to record an entire unabridged novel is quite an achievement. It's very hard work. It takes an awful lot of concentration. It takes an awful lot of research if you haven't got a producer, which nowadays you don't have. You have to do all that yourself. And I think we ought to give ourselves a round of applause for those of us who do it for just being able to get it done. And it is, and it, it, you know, it is. In the old days, the old days, not long ago, you had somebody there who'd read the book, a producer who would help you with research into accents and strange names and translation of, of classical Greek, which I don't read and therefore needs to be translated by somebody, then you can know how to pronounce it. But you don't anymore. You just have an engineer who hasn't read the book, so there's no point in asking them because they won't know, so it's all down to you. And sadly, need I say, and I shouldn't say because I shouldn't be complaining, for no extra money. So the time spent on preparation has sort of doubled without any remuneration for that. But that's life, and I'm not complaining, but there we are. That's how things change, sometimes, for the worse. And is, is there anything that you would have liked to have done, or anything you missed out on that you, looking back, you go, I wish I'd done that job, or I wish I'd done more of this particular thing? Oh, and secretly... I should have liked to have been a song and dance man. <laughs> but I can neither dance nor sing. Oh, I did sing in Treebeard, I suppose. Treebeard had a song. No, that's what I secretly would like to have been. If I come round again, maybe I'll, I'll do that. You'll put on the tap shoes. But nobody taught us when we were at Rada to do modern dancing or tap or anything like that. We were taught sort of classical ballet, for instance. And the theatre we came out into was the kitchen sink in full flow. So it's, you know, very strange. You never know what's around the corner. Well, 
Um, this has been absolutely fabulous, and I'm so glad uh, uh, that you've given me so much of your time. Um, we reconvened for two reasons. One, to talk about Doctor Who, and two, to raise a bit of money for charity. So the listeners... Uh, you've not paid for this, listeners, and no money has changed hands for this, so Stephen is going to nominate a charity. I would like to nominate an Alzheimer's charity. And we, this was convened nominally to talk about Doctor Who and for Doctor Who's 50th anniversary. So what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there, Stephen, from whose clutches you've never quite, quite escaped? Oh, keep the faith, keep on watching. And as... Um, as I think it was Omega said, a hero, I should have been a god. And on that superb note, Stephen Thorne, thank you very much. <laughs> Brilliant. That was great. Thank you. No, 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 that was great. Uh, no, it Thanks to Stephen, his charity is, uh, well, he said anything to do with Alzheimer's, so I will point you in the direction of uh, alzheimers.org.uk. That's A-L-Z-H-E-I-M-E-R-S.org.uk. But if you have an Alzheimer's charity that's close to your heart, please feel free to donate to that. Uh, there's another one of these next time. Thanks to Ian Atkins for putting it out. And thanks to David Bickerstaff for putting myself and Stephen in touch. What a gentleman Stephen is. Uh, I'm appearing in a series of plays called J.B. Shorts in Manchester at a venue called 53-2, which is just by Deansgate between the 1st and 12th of November in a play written by James Quinn, who is in the Doctor Who story Flatline. So if you don't want to come and see it for me, come and see it for him, because he is legitimate. Uh, until the next time, ta-ta. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Welcome to the TARDIS. We should be safe, yeah? Nearly there, Joe. Cheer up. Sorry, Doctor. I'm just a little worried, that's all. The Third Doctor Adventures. Baking hot, dark. Baking hot? Oh, yes, it is rather. <sighs> what was that? The quantum moment of your death. Just hold on. Hold on. I once met a terribly wise man. I know most of them are terribly silly, but he was an exception. And he taught me a great deal. One thing in particular, take all the opportunities the universe offers you. I'm reading the Future Analyst's report, and it's making me queasy. The word of Sortan spreads far and wide. Sortan. Of course, that's why you're here, isn't it? For the transcendence. Um, no. Too bright! I can't see! The human lifespan is so short. A newer, younger body is full of opportunity. Joe, what have you got yourself mixed up in? What is it the two of you actually do? We work together. Your cousin Joe is my assistant, Stephanie. Our problem is what's happening to the planet. It just doesn't make sense. Doctor? I think we should get back to the TARDIS. 
Come on, Joe, quickly. Doctor! Grab my hand, Joe. Hold on. Perhaps there's still time. If you expect me to believe your story, I'd put a bit more effort into it. But it's the truth. But get back here, stupid... Gentlemen. Hey! 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 Big finish. Recreating an era. Where the devil am I? Still in Bramfield, Doctor. 